Heritage. Our Heritage. A program about who we are, where we come from, and our aspirations. Hello and welcome to Our Heritage, a program that talks about who we are, where we come from, and our destiny as Africans. We are coming to you from Channel Africa, from Johannesburg, South Africa. You're with me, Sydney Katungapiri, and thank you for joining me. against two features which are the hallmarks of African life in South Africa. Channel Africa brings you a special episode of Our Heritage where we hear anecdotes and special tributes including the part of the centenary celebration speech by Barack Obama, the former president of the United States of America. What do these tributes speak of a rural boy from South Africa's Eastern Cape that rose to become one of the greatest statesmen of the recent past? Nelson Kolisha Mandela. Stay tuned as we get you glued to the radio in the next half an hour or so. Nelson Mandela, who, born at a time when global relations were at their lowest, he grew up facing the might of the West inhumane institutionalized system of segregation called apartheid. Fighting this system caused Nelson Mandela's freedom, which found him serving 27 years of his life incarcerated at Robben Island, situated near Cape Town in South Africa. Outside prison, Many people and organizations, including International Society, fought hard for his release. After his release, Mandela was celebrated as an icon and a brave man. But did Mandela make himself? that the average monthly wage is 32 rands, 24%, and that 46% of all African families in Johannesburg do not earn enough to keep the property. <laughs> former wife of the late Samora Machel, married Nelson Mandela after his divorce from Winnie Madigizela Mandela at his 80th birthday. They lived together till his death in 2013. 
Grasha talks about people's misunderstanding of Mandela's legacy. Madiba internalized the courage and determinations of his own people and gave the absolute best of himself to give to South Africa its political freedom. But even having achieved the highest aspirations of humanity, the Madiba I know is a simple, grounded, and humble man. I want to share with you one of the moments where this humility expressed itself so genuinely. Madiba was attending the 75th birthday of his close friend and comrade, George Bezos. The event was a star-studded affair with anti-apartheid struggle heroes, VIPs from around the world in attendance. He was getting on in age by then and was not in a position to enjoy the festivities well into the night. So we agreed he would attend for a brief while and would then make our exit. We arrived to find an interaction of well wishes welcoming him to the party. As guests greet him and as each of speakers took to the stage, they were singing his praises and bestowing upon him the most flattering of compliments. We were not in the room for more than 30 minutes, but each minute was filled with obvious displays of affection and love for him. With each accolade, he graciously smiled, nodded in appreciations, and thanked them for their kind words. As we leave, and we are driving home, and reflecting on the lovely evening, he turned to me, and in genuine curiosity, he questioned, Mom, because he used to call me mom. He said, mom, don't you think these people are exaggerating? I'm not at all these things they are saying about me. His self-effacing disbelief made me chuckle and I gently reassured him and I said, no, Papa, they're not exaggerating. Yes, you are indeed all these wonderful things they said tonight because you represent the best of what so many of us aspire to be. He nodded in seeming agreement, but I could tell he did not fully believe me. You see, he was cognizant of the fact that he was a flawed human being and said in many occasions that he was not a saint. The stature to which he had risen and the symbol of virtue that he had become did not shake him into pompous arrogance. Despite his monumental achievement, his incredible influence and impact and overwhelming fame and notoriety the essence of who he was and his level of self-awareness had never been altered. His sober view of himself 
was that of uh, many times you'd say, I am a country boy. Madiba was humble enough to recognize the limits of the achievements of his generation. He wisely wrote in his long work to freedom, and I quote, the truth is that we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free, the right not to be oppressed. We have not taken the final step of our journey, but the first step on a longer and even more difficult route. Listening to a special episode of our heritage where we hear anecdotes and special tributes, including the part of the centenary celebration speech by Barack Obama, the former president of the United States of America. What do these tributes speak of a rural boy from South Africa's Eastern Cape that rose to become one of the greatest statesmen of the recent past? Nelson Orisha Mandela. Stay tuned as you get glued to the radio in the next half an hour or so. Patrick Lumumba is a renowned Kenyan professor who speaks fondly about Mandela as part of the 16th annual Mandela Lecture. To forget the unique quality of this land which sometimes you refer to as Mzans. There is a sense in which this land is unrivaled in many ways. This land throughout history has been responsible for the production of great men and women. If you allow me a little latitude as you master guest lecturer, <laughs> permit me to remind you that this land produced Shaka the Zulu of whom I learned in history. This land is great. Permit me also to remind us that this land produced a man who is seldom mentioned in history, Pixley Kaisaka Seme. Permit me also to remind us that this land produced Albert Sisulu, this man, this land produced Albert Lutuli and Walter Sisulu. This land produced Chris Hani. This land produced Winnie Madikezela Mandela. It did not stop there. This land produced Albertina Sisulu. This land produced great men like Bantu Stephen Biko. This land produced Robert Sobukwe. This is a great land. But even as we remember those important figures in history, today we are dedicating ourselves to the memory of Nelson Mandela. What should we and what must we say of Nelson Mandela? We will remember that he was jailed for 27 years. We will remember that a man who loved peace and reconciliation was forced by circumstances to be the arrow's head in the formation of Mkonto Wesizwe. We will remember that this man sacrificed personal comfort and embraced privation for the general good. 
We can remember many things, but what can we remember about this man of whom historians have written history books, of whom filmmakers have dramatized, of whom children have sung praise songs, of whom sports writers have immortalized, this man of whom the spiritually inclined have moralized about. What must we remember about this man? We can remember many things. But today I think that wisdom not only requires, but demands that we must ask ourselves what Nelson Mandela would have said on the 100th day of his birth, 100th year of his birth. What if he were alive today? What would he have said? And I suspect he would have said many things. I think Nelson Mandela would have remembered the year 1965. He would have said that in that year, when I wrote No Easy Walk to Freedom, I was thinking about one of the most pernicious regimes that the world has ever known. A regime that institutionalized racism a regime that proceeded on the assumption and on the practice that men should be judged by the color of their skin and not by the content of their character. I think he would have remembered that through sustained effort that regime was brought down. I think Mandela would have reminded us that in 1960 there was a massacre in Sharpeville, he would have reminded us. He would have reminded us that in 1976 there was another massacre in Soweto, he would have reminded us. But he would not have stopped there. He would have reminded us that it was through the corporate agency of men and women who are prepared to lose their lives that the apartheid regime was destroyed. But he would not have stopped there. He would have told us that history is only valuable to the extent that it reminds us and warns us at once that we must never repeat the mistakes that we make. But he would have gone silent and said that the tragedy of humanity is that we learn nothing from history. He would have reminded us as he looked at this continent, he would have reminded us that as he fought in the 1950s and 1960s, the entire continent of Africa was under the colonial yoke. He would have reminded us that we Africans have suffered more than any other race. He would have reminded us that there was a time when globalization meant the slavery of Africa. He would have reminded us that there was a time when slavery lost its value and luster. That there are men and women who came from Europe and took away our freedom and took away our land. He would have reminded us. He would not have stopped there. He would have reminded us that through our own effort, 
in the 1950s and 1960s, we liberated ourselves under the 32 heads of states and government who were then alive sat down in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in the month of May 1963. And each one of them spoke eloquently and passionately, reminding us that the acquisition of flag independence was just but the beginning. He would have reminded us of the speeches of many great men who sat on that day. He would have told us that the host on that day, Hail Silasi of Ethiopia, reminded the hosts that Africa can only regain our esteem if our people are free and if she exploits our resources. He wouldn't have not stopped there. He would have gone ahead and reminded us that even before we met in Addis Ababa in 1963, the neo-colonial project was alive and well and that the neo-colonialists had already killed Patrice Emery Lumumba in 1961. He would have reminded us. He would not have stopped there. He would have gone ahead and gone through the speeches of all the leaders that were present on that day, on the 24th day of May 1963, and would have reminded us of the speech of Mwalimu Kambaragenyerere, and would have told us, Marimu told us we came here to Addis Ababa not to unite, but to underscore the fact that without unity, we will be recolonized again. But he would have concluded with the speech of that great man, Osagie Fokwame Nukuruma. And he would have told us that Nukuruma warned us that if we don't unite, we will be colonized again. And he would have said that as I look at Africa today, I ask myself the question, has Africa liberated herself from our own self-declared enemies? The enemy of poverty, is it dead and buried? Have we written the obituary of poverty, you would have asked. Have we written the obituary of ignorance, you would have asked. Have we written the obituary of disease and sorrow and want? Are we at the dinner table of civilization as equal partners, or we still reside in the menu to be consumed by other civilization? Madiba would have asked. And I think that Madiba would have surveyed the continent of Africa seeking evidence whether the continent of Africa is truly, truly liberated. He would have started from Cape Town. And he would have looked at Cape Town and said, yes, we liberated ourselves and there is liberation from political apartheid, but he would have asked rhetorically, 
Is there a possibility that there is the economic appetite? Madiba would have posed. And he would not have stopped there. He would have gone to Namibia and asked, Is it different now that we have an African government? Are the young men and women who are resident in Namibia liberated? Do they have opportunities for innovation and invention? Are they tilling their land? Are they getting the fruits of their labor? Are they exploiting their minerals? Or they are merely workers? He was of wood and growers of water. He would have asked of Namibia, but he would not have stopped there. He would have gone to Botswana and asked, who eats the choicest meat from Botswana? Are they eaten in South Africa or in Europe? He would have asked. As one of Mandela's ministers during his presidency, Jaina Idu, who was once a minister of communications, speaks of how it was working with Nelson Mandela. Mandela was an incredibly complex person. You know, does anyone understand another person? You know, does, do you understand yourself? I'm still navigating the journey to understand who I am, what is the meaning of being human, what is the purpose and, and meaning of my life. So yes, Mandela, in what I knew, never saw him himself as a prophet, as a saint, as a messiah who was going to single-handedly deliver us from apartheid and the heresy of injustice. He saw himself as part of a collective. You know, when he first came out of prison on the, you know, the 11th of February 1990, he stood before that crowd after 27 years and said, I stand before you, not as a prophet, but as a humble servant of you, the people. Mandela was a person of great spirit. He, he tried to share with us the, a feeling, an aspiration that we are all connected, we are all from one source under the different skin color, the differences of culture, religion, sexual orientation. We are 99.9% identical. He tried to show that true purpose in life was serving people, not serving yourself, enriching yourself. So his whole life, 67 years of active commitment, was a total sacrifice where even as a father of the nation, he sacrificed his family. He was never the father of his children, of his family. So he carried that heartbrokenness, you know, that pain with him. And so Mandela, the, the statesman, is what we know. But Mandela, the human being, we are only beginning to get glimpses of it through the letters that he wrote from prison to his jailers, to his children, to his friends, to his political colleagues. And they show a person that was deeply tortured by the choices he had to make, but never regretted those choices. That to the end of his life, he always saw himself as a servant leader. And that's the Mandela I, I know. It's not the Mandela that we put on a pedestal, we build another statue, we name another you know, another hospital or university or airport after him. It's not about him hanging in a museum. It's about how do you live your life with 
love and compassion and generosity and solidarity? How do you descend from your head to your heart and unlock a great spirit? And being a great African, you know, we believe in our ancestral spirits that are there to guide us. And I think in the 27 years that he spent in prison, he was able to go deeply within himself and find out who he is. Much of our challenges in, in this continent are about us forgetting our roots, forgetting that there was civilization, there were great empires, there was a great way in which we lived together, lived on Mother Earth, we respected the forest. When we looked at the forest, we didn't see timber to cut down, to sell, to make a profit. What we have to realize in Africa is that we have a history that goes beyond 500 years of slavery, of colonization, of apartheid, of brutal exploitation. We need to connect to that indigenous knowledge systems. To understand Ubuntu means more than I am because we are. It meant in the way we work with each other, the way we connect with each other, the way we connect to the environment, the way we understand our culture is deeply rooted as part of this cradle of humanity. And when the world is in chaos, where violence has become the only way to settle disputes, where profit and greed threaten the future birthrights of our children on our continent and the world, we must understand that Mandela was trying to remind us that true purpose is not how wealthy you are, how much you own, is how you live your life, how you serve people, how you protect in a way of being a steward, a custodian of this wonderful, priceless gift that is given to us by God. Now, uh, Mr. Naidu, you were so fortunate to have worked with him as even serving as a minister. Maybe anecdotes of some of that time that you can remember uh, today. Yes, there are hundreds of anecdotes. You know, every day is an anecdote. You know, the wonderful thing about Mandela when you walk with him into a big conference, you know, what would he first do? He would first stop and he'll greet each of the people that are handling the security, the registration, the people that are waiting on tables, before he greeted those luminaries, the VIPs. For Mandela, everyone was a VIP. I never felt that I worked for Mandela. I worked with him. I could disagree with him. You know, there are wonderful stories about his humanity, about him, his love of children. You know, my son was two years old when, you know, I was launching as Minister of Reconstruction and Development a big campaign about working together called the Masakani campaign and he was launching it. And my son went up to the podium at two years old and kept interrupting him. And the first time I went and picked him, brought him back. The second time my wife went. The third time Mandela took him and put him on the podium. And my son listened very patiently to him as he completed his speech. Mandela had this wonderful way in which his spirit could connect to anyone, young and old, white and black. Didn't matter what your culture, your, your religion was. When he was in a mosque, he was a Muslim. When he was in the church, he was a Christian. When he was in a temple, he was a Hindu. When he was in synagogue, he was a Jew. He could interchangeably understand that all knowledge, all wisdom, all of us come from one source, the great creator, the great mystery. This is Mandela, the extraordinary human being. One of Nelson Mandela's prodigies 
is one Barack Obama, who, like Mandela, rose to become one of the extraordinary human beings in the recent past. Did Mandela inspire him in a way? Madiba was born in the village Mbezo. So in his autobiography, he describes a happy childhood. He's looking after cattle, he's playing with the other boys. Eventually he attends a school where his teacher gave him the English name Nelson. And as many of you know, he's quoted saying, Why she bestowed this particular name upon me, I have no idea. There was no reason to believe that a young black boy at this time, in this place, could in any way alter history. After all, South Africa was then less than a decade removed from full British control. Already laws were being codified to implement racial segregation and subjugation, the network of laws that would be known as apartheid. Most of Africa, including my father's homeland, was under colonial rule. The dominant European powers having ended a horrific world war just a few months after Madiba's birth, viewed this continent and its people primarily as spoils in a contest for territory, abundant natural resources, and cheap labor, and the inferiority of the black race, an indifference towards black culture and interests and aspirations was a given. And such a view of the world that certain races, certain nations, certain groups were inherently superior and that violence and coercion is the primary basis for governance, that the strong necessarily exploit the weak, wealth is determined primarily by conquest. That view of the world was hardly confined to relations between Europe and Africa, or relations between whites and blacks. Whites were happy to exploit other whites when they could. And by the way, blacks were often willing to exploit other blacks. And around the globe, the majority of people lived at subsistence levels, without a say in the politics or economic forces that determined their lives. Often they were subject to the whims and cruelties of distant leaders. The average person saw no possibility of advancing from the circumstances of their birth. Women were almost uniformly subordinate to men. Privilege and status was rigidly bound by caste and color and ethnicity and religion. And even in my own country, even in democracies like the United States, founded on a declaration that all men are created equal. Racial segregation and systemic discrimination was the law in almost half the country and the norm throughout the rest of the country. That was the world just 100 years ago. There are people alive today who were alive in that world. It is hard then to overstate the remarkable transformations that have taken place since that time. A second world war, even more terrible than the first, along with a cascade of liberation movements from Africa to Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, would finally bring an end to colonial rule. More and more peoples, having witnessed the horrors of totalitarianism, the repeated mass slaughters of the 20th century, 
began to embrace a new vision for humanity, a new idea, one based not only on the principle of national self-determination, but also on the principles of democracy and rule of law and civil rights and the inherent dignity of every single individual. In those nations with market-based economies, suddenly union movements developed and health and safety and commercial regulations were instituted and access to public education was expanded and social welfare systems emerged, all with the aim of constraining the excesses of capitalism and enhancing its ability to provide opportunity not just to some but to all people. And the result was unmatched economic growth and a growth of a middle class. And in my own country, the moral force of the civil rights movement not only overthrew Jim Crow laws, but it opened up the floodgates for women and historically marginalized groups to reimagine themselves, to find their own voices, to make their own claims to full citizenship. It was in service of this long walk towards freedom and justice an equal opportunity that Nelson Mandela devoted his life. At the outset, his struggle was particular to this place, to his homeland, a fight to end apartheid, a fight to ensure lasting political and social and economic equality for its disenfranchised non-white citizens. But through his sacrifice and unwavering leadership, and perhaps most of all, through his moral example, Mandela and the movement he led would come to signify something larger. He came to embody the universal aspirations of dispossessed people all around the world, their hopes for a better life, the possibility of a moral transformation in the conduct of human affairs.